Good morning, Living Water. It's good to see everyone out this morning. Thank you for being here with us. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. Now, if you would mind standing for the reading of God's Word. Today we're looking at the church at Thyatira. We'll pick up at verse 18 through verse 29. You can follow along silently as I read aloud. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my service to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches would know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you mind bowing with me for a moment of prayer as we prepare to look at God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing me to serve in your ministry. Thank you for guiding me this far and granting me grace on many previous occasions. Even now, Lord, as I, with this congregation, seek to enter into the heavenly court to approach your presence, you know the reason for which I have come. Lord, the scripture teaches us that it was you who, through your servants, Moses and Joshua, brought your people out of bondage. Heavenly Father, we humbly request your redeeming grace, your bondage-breaking power today, that your spirit would work in and among us to deliver us from any bondage to sin that we have in our lives. Lord Jesus, by your instruction, I confess that I am an unworthy servant. And so I ask you to cleanse me from any impurity and fill me with your Holy Spirit. On my own, I confess I am powerless. Heavenly Father, let your spirit speak through me to the minds and hearts of those listening. As we just read, 
You know the needs of the people because you search the heart and mind of everyone to give every person according to his or her works. Help me to glorify you today. You are the potter. I am the clay in your wonder-working hands. Thank you for your grace and strength that you've already provided. We ask these requests in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The late Chuck Colson in Breakpoint wrote the following words that described a sad incident in his life. He said, I still remember my sadness on hearing that an old friend and someone I believe was a sincere Christian was leaving his wife of many years. I was shocked and disappointed. And I wondered, how could this man committed to both his spouse and his Lord, fall in love with another woman. Well, an essay by the late Sheldon Vanneken helps answer this question and reminds us that such temptations are all too common. Vanneken, best known as the author of the powerful story entitled A Severe Mercy and another work of his called Under the Mercy, explores these types of feelings that lead us astray. In one particular essay that he calls The Loves, Vonnegut describes how a Christian friend of his by the name of John shocked him by announcing that he was leaving his wife to marry another woman. And John explained to Sheldon his sudden change of heart by saying, it seemed so good, so right. That's when we knew we had to get divorces. We belonged together. Vonnegut went on to share that he had a conversation with another friend by the name of Diana, and she was leaving her husband for another man. And Diana defended herself with almost the exact same reasoning as John had done. She said, it was just so good and right with Roger that I knew it would be wrong to go on with Paul. Vonnegut explains that both John and Diana were invoking a higher law, the feeling of goodness and rightness, and a feeling so powerful that it swept away whatever guilt they might feel for what they were doing to their families. Have you ever felt the pull to stray? that other option that seemed so sweet and so attractive because it offered a solution to a problem you were feeling or facing in a relationship or some other area of life. Now, actually, I'm not talking about straying from a spouse. I'm talking about straying from the Lord. One writer gives us helpful insight in concerning this matter. He says, humans do not choose evil because it appears evil. They choose evil because it appears good. See, evil is deceptive. It promises pleasure but only ends in pain. So as we get ready to look at the letter, let me give us a little bit of cultural context to understand before we unpack this text about what was going on in Thyatira. 
So we've traveled from Pergamum. Pastor Mike left us there last week, and we've gone about 30 miles southeast to the city of Thyatira. It would kind of be like driving from Harrisburg today down to, to Mount Joy. And here we find our fourth church, which the Lord Jesus addresses or wants to address in this text. Now, unlike the Roman letter where we get these greetings at the end that kind of give us some kind of feel for how many homes that believers were meeting in that made up these house churches that comprised this, we have no evidence of that. We don't know if it was two or if it was 20 different homes in which the believers were meeting. But the same is true of the city, even though this is the longest of the seven letters we have, the least information about it. And it seems from our knowledge of history right now that this was not that important of a city. And mainly our information comes from coin inscriptions. We know that at least at this point in history, it was a small city trying to reestablish itself. It had been a, a military outpost originally that was now reshaping itself as a place of trade. And that was because of Roman rule. One scholar by the name of William Ramsey gives us some of the industries that were there that were prevalent from the coins that we discovered and unearthed. There were wool workers and linen workers and makers of outer garments and dyers and leather workers and tanners and potters and bakers and slave dealers and bronze smiths. But we know somebody from this city. Her name is Lydia. We met her in Acts 16 a few years ago when we went through the entire books of Acts, and she worked in the textile industry. And we find her described by Luke as a God-fearer. That was before she came to place faith in Jesus Christ, which gives us some kind of indication that in her home city there was most likely some Jewish presence or perhaps a, a synagogue because she was a, a God-fearer. But Lydia seems probably in light of the evidence that we have, at least the limited evidence we have right now, perhaps if we dig up more stuff our picture of Thyatira will change as we unearth more things, but it seems that she was different because the people of her city were not like her. They worshipped other gods. A number of scriptures have been found that refer to temples of Apollo, Artemis, Helios, and later to the emperor Hadrian. But, but, but the main god that they worshipped was this hero god, Tyremnos. Tyremnos. He was viewed as the protector of the city, and he was often associated with Apollo. And from the citizens' perspective, they were already worshipping the son of God. His name just happened to be Apollo or Teremnus, not Jesus. Uh, as we think about Lydia, she begins to open our eyes to what disciples of Jesus faced in this city. Uh, we don't know what really happened to Lydia after Acts because we don't have any other documentation, but if she returned home at some point from Philippi to her home city, then she probably had to deal with her trade guild. I think of a trade guild, something like a union, but it had social and religious aspects tied in as well. One writer describes them and says that guilds were these corporate bodies that taking uh, active measures to protect the common interests of those who were members of the guild by owning property, passing decrees, and exercising all kinds of other considerable power. See, being a member of the guild meant employment in your field or trade at the time. But these religious aspects that were tied up in work and these social aspects is what caused the issue for Christians. One writer in reflecting on ancient culture said that John, the writer of the Revelation, was right about what he was saying about paganism because no one who studies history, Greek, Roman, or West Asiatic paganism as a practical force in human life, 
sees differently than what John, the conclusion that John comes to. There was, of course, some lofty ideals and some high ideals by some of those who were much more would be thought of as perhaps reasonable thinkers who were portraying this idea of looking for a moral life. But in human nature, the inevitable tendency of paganism was always toward a low standard of morality in life. And so if a Christian who was employed in a field of trade to draw your income and to be associated with your group to be able to succeed in life, if you were to get engaged in that, then you were going to have to face this problem on a regular basis. One scholar says that there was probably a meal on a monthly basis where they gathered as a group of those who had the same trade and had a feast dedicated to their patron god. Imagine for a moment Lydia goes back home to Thyatira and she gets with her guild of sellers of purple. Perhaps they're dyers and fabric makers and wool makers and they're all there in the textile industry there and they've gathered for this feast and she sees her friends and she greets them and there's meal and there's food and the head of the, the guild stands up and says, all right, everybody, calm down. We're going to have a moment now to just pray. We want to give thanks to Apollo for this meal that he's provided and uh, this is going to be sacrificed in his honor. So we want to take a moment now. We want to thank Apollo for blessing our trade and for all the money we've made. And then we're going to eat this meal that's been sacrificed to Apollo, and we're going to give him thanks, and we're going to just share in that. And afterwards, the meal, there'll be a little bit of time of entertainment. You can imagine the kind of issue that this would cause for a Christian to partake in a meal that was offered to another god. But if you refused, then you could be isolated both socially and economically. You feel the tension? Dr. Ronald Hine gives us a window into the early first century thinking of people who were part of society because they had a different worldview than what we have today. See, see, they back then believed that there were many gods and they worshipped all kinds of a diversity of gods and they felt like gods were uh, connected to every area of life. And so when Jews and Christians came along, Saying there was only one God, this was a strange concept and needed defending as they asserted this because everybody believed there were multiple gods. And you had different gods for different things who helped you in different ways. And and think about it, every aspect of life was controlled or influenced by some god. Whether that was the weather that you had, a, a god was responsible for that and maybe not always the same one. A God was responsible for how well you did in business, whether you made money or not. And if you went on a military campaign, you wanted to have the right God on your side to make sure that you won the the battle because ultimately it was a battle of the gods as well. And so when Christians didn't show up at public feasts honoring these gods, the people who had this worldview, they feared that the gods would be angry. And as a result, when gods of those kind get angry, they punish whole communities. Maybe it would be a flood. Maybe God, this God was mad today and he would shut off your food supply. Maybe the God would be mad and send a disease among you. Maybe because he didn't get worship, there would be some other kind of natural catastrophe. And so when Christians said, nah, we're going to back out of the feast idea. We can't worship that. 
They said, you know what? You're an enemy of society because you're hurting us because you're making the gods angry and they're going to punish us and you are not working for the good of everyone else in society. And so Christians were isolated and persecuted. We heard a little bit about Pergamum and how they were treated there. At least uh, there was the one believer who lost his life, Antipas, and so it looks like in Thyatira they were a little bit more violent and willing to, I mean in, in Pergamum, to willing to, to take the life of a Christian. Well, in Thyatira it seems that the, the bigger, larger issue was economic isolation. Don't want to serve the gods? No income, no work. You just won't get paid. You'll get isolated. And economic pressure can make life difficult. Now, in this letter, we find out that it looks like the Nicolaitan heresy that is taking up residence in Pergamum had already been well-rooted and grounded in Thyatira and for a much longer period of time. And in this case, the Lord Jesus references what it seems like to be the leader of the group there that's influencing some in the church, but he calls her by a name of an Old Testament character, probably not one you want to name your daughter, Jezebel, because she's promoting this concept of teaching. Now, she could be doing a variety of things. We're not sure exactly what she was teaching or how she was doing it. Perhaps it was that she was taking certain scriptures, but the way that she was applying them was achieving a different end than which what they were attended. Or maybe it was this idea like some of the, the cults of the day, these secret knowledge cults. If you only had true spiritual insight, then you would realize that it's okay to participate in the guilds. Or maybe she was reasoning along the line, you know what, if you stay in the guild, you can exert a positive influence. Whatever it was that she was saying that was working, it always ended up with followers of Jesus in idolatry and immorality. And so that Jesus has a very stern message for the church that we don't want to miss because it's important for our spiritual lives. So as with all the letter, the Lord, Jesus gives this call for believers to be faithful to him. He expects this collectively of us as a church, and he expects it of you in an individual basis as well. Both things are true. And by looking at this letter to Thyatira, we get a chance to learn a little bit about what the Lord is like, what he loves, and what he hates. And we ought to show our love for him by evidencing that in our conduct. And why do we do this? Do this is because Jesus matters to us. And so I want to take the rest of our time and answer just two questions. Two questions. Why should you be faithful to Jesus based on what is said in this text? And how can you be faithful to Jesus? Why should you be faithful to Jesus? And how can you be faithful to Jesus? Well, as we revisit and look at this text, we realize that economic pressure is a Serious reality, and it can work like a cattle prod works. It can stimulate you to move in a direction to compromise your relationship with Jesus Christ in order for you to survive in the world. It's no wonder when the Lord was teaching 
in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, here translated as money. So, so why is it that we want to be faithful to Jesus? Well, if we take a broader view of the New Testament and we take in all that it's teaching, fundamentally behind all of these texts stand the idea that the believer wants to be faithful because you trust and love Jesus. As we sang earlier, it is because he first loved us and gave himself for us. But as we look at Thyatira, Jesus gives us an additional reason in the text. I, I can put it in two words for you. Jesus judges. Jesus judges. If you look at the text, we find that the first thing that we encounter is a description in verse 18 of Jesus. He is described as the Son of God. And this would have major significance for those who are living in Thyatira. Jesus is claiming that Apollo and Terimnus is, are not the sons of God. They're, they're, they're pretenders to a title that only belongs really to him. And as a result of the title, our minds are, are drawn back to the furnace experience of Daniel's three friends. When they were in the furnace and they were thrown in because they would not compromise with the ruling powers of the nation. And they were cast into a furnace and there was a fourth figure in the furnace, and he looked like a son of God. By that, what this uh, alludes to us or, or teaches us is that we realize in light of that, that Jesus is the one who delivers his people when they face trials. It's Jesus who gets in the furnace with you. The last two descriptions also have meaning for the city. Notice he says that his feet are like burnished bronze, and here we find that this is a city of trade gills, and here he speaks of himself as bronze. But there's a figure in the Old Testament also in Daniel 10 who's described with the exact same features. His eyes are like fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. But there that figure is the one who brings God's divine judgment against pagan nations. And ultimately Jesus lets us know by that we realize that he is the one who is bringing God's judgment. He's the mediator of God's judgment. Jesus judges. Now we're going to see there's two ways in the text. There are two ways that Jesus judges. One, Jesus disciplines those who engage in idolatry and immorality. Jesus disciplines those who engage in idolatry and in immorality. So this Jezebel remix, we might call her, has claimed some spiritual authority. Here he says she calls herself a, a prophetess. And she has exerted influence in the church. She is teaching things that the Lord does not approve of. And why? Because his servants are being led astray, and that is resulting in them engaging in gross sin. Now, and now she may not even realize what's going on. She may not understand where her, the source of her teachings from, but Jesus pulled back the spiritual covers, however it was, whatever they were calling it. He says, let me tell you who's really behind what she's teaching. Verse 24, these are the teachings of Satan. He's the source. And in dealing with Jezebel, we see the consistent character of God from Genesis to the Revelation. 
As with Israel, Jesus at some point in the past has already warned her, whatever her real name was, we'll just call her Jezebel for now, to turn from her sin. And he gave her time to repent, a mercy from God. But notice what she does. Like Israel, though she's given time to turn from her sins and she's been warned, she refuses. She is unwilling to turn away from her sin, though Jesus has warned her. And so he applies discipline in verses 22 and 23. Notice the tools that he uses. He uses sickness, which may refer here to plague, tribulation, that obviously has the idea of pain, and death. Jezebel, he says, is going to receive sickness. He's going to cast her onto a bed, not the kind that she's hoping for, but one of pain and suffering. And her disciples that are fully committed to her teaching, Jesus says, I have discipline for them as well. I'm going to take their lives. For those who are starting to listen to her practice, you're starting to flirt with it, you think that she might have something, he says, let me warn you as I did her and give you time to turn around or you'll suffer the same fate that she and her disciples have suffered. Now, we ought not find this strain to associate these kinds of things with Jesus. It's probably not something we feel comfortable with thinking about Jesus acting in this way, but this is how Jesus acts. God has used these tools before. Acts chapter 5, when we preach through Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, when they lied, what did the Spirit do? They died. In Corinthians, Paul says, you who are taking the, the communion in an unworthy manner, he says, that, that's why some of you are sick and some of you are asleep, dead. God is disciplining. See, Jesus judges Jesus treats idolatry and immorality seriously, and I would recommend, in light of this fact, that we treat it seriously as well. And that doesn't mean that every time somebody gets sick or somebody dies that Jesus is judging them. But it also does not mean we should go to the other side and, and come to the conclusion that it never means that Jesus might be dealing with somebody about their sin that they're unwilling to turn away from in life. Now, serving as a pastor at Living Water has afforded me a variety of privileges to serve others. One of the privileges I have is sometimes uh, getting to take, give people a ride home. And so I, I uh, on one occasion a couple of years ago, had a chance to take a brother home who needed a ride from the food pantry, and I took him home to his house. And as I was take, helping him take his items into his home, uh, you know, he had professed faith in Jesus Christ or declared that he had faith in Jesus Christ. And so, you know, I thought we had a common bond there. And, you know, as I was taking things in, I... Noticed as I was walking out that there was this shrine that was sitting over on one of his tables in his living room. Uh, it was decorated in a, an interesting way, and it had a little figurine in it, which I would just call an idol. And because he had declared faith in Jesus Christ, I, you know, I just couldn't help myself. And I said, hey, man, you know, like, what's that about right there? And he said, oh, oh that's the goddess. And I said, oh, the goddess? I said, you know, look, what's up with the goddess? And he's like, oh, I have to pray to the goddess too. And I said, you pray to the goddess? I said, what do you know, you know, like Jesus and stuff like that? He's like, well, I just have to cover all my bases. Jesus takes care of certain things, and she takes care of other things. So I pray to the goddess to cover the things that Jesus won't take care of. That was shocking to me. 
Now, we would consider that blatant idolatry. Now, now, now if, we, if I were to survey this room, I probably, if I came home to anybody's house today, I wouldn't find a shrine set up in your house. You're probably not going home today and kneeling down to Apollo and calling out for a little bit of aid. That, that's probably not happening. But, but there's another kind of idolatry that is much more pernicious that we have to watch out for that shows up. Tim Keller in his book, The Reasons for God, read this in our small group a number of years ago, probably about 10 years ago. He, he raises this idolatry, this kind of idolatry that God talks about in the Old Testament. It's not an outward idol. It's an idol of the heart. That if we're not careful, we'll set up. And he talks about it from this angle. He talks about it in the sense of how someone centers their life and identity around something other than God and Jesus, and it becomes a form of idolatry in their life. He says this, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. And the other person's problems will becoming, become overwhelming to you. If you center your life on your, and your identity on your family and children, you would try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. And at worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you'll be a driven workaholic, a boring and a shallow person. And at worst, you will lose your family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll find yourself eaten up by worry and jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up in your face. If you center your identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, and that is the God of your life, you will find yourself always addicted to something. And you'll want to be chained to getting involved in some kind of escape strategy whenever life becomes difficult. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll constantly be looking, overly, uh, looking at, or feeling overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. And you'll fear confronting others, which will ultimately result in you being a useless friend because you won't help when they need it. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you'll divide the world into good and bad, and you'll demonize your opponents, and ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies. And without them, you really have no purpose in life. And if you center your life on religion and morality, you will, if you're living up to your moral standards, find yourself to be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. And if you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. Whenever we have something other than Jesus and God as which we're centering our life and identity on it, it always leads us down a bad path because idolatry has consequences. But there's another type of idolatry he's already kind of referred to, which the scriptures warn us against. Paul said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed is a form of idolatry. Watch out for it. You remember that young man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, tell my brother to give me some of the inheritance. So I guess his parents had died, and he was like, look, I want some of that money, and he won't give it to me. 
Tell him to give me some of the money. And this is what the Lord said in response. Take care. Be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Instead, what we ought to be known for as people, as what the Christians were known for, as Julian the emperor saw in a later century, it was that Christians were so known for their generosity that he told the pagan priest, you need to emulate the Christians. Is that true of us today? According to verse 23, Jesus rightly judges people, and he does it based on their works. Now, this is a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the New Testament. We could spend the rest of the morning going through all the verses that lays out this thing, that God, Jesus, gives people judgment according to their works. A couple of texts just to remind us of this theme. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus talks about the end of human history, and he says, when the Son of Man is sitting on his throne and he judges and divides the people, it will be based on your conduct. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 2. He says, listen, when God judges at the end of history, it's going to be based on your works. And so what Jesus says about himself here in this text reminds us of what God had already said about himself in Jeremiah chapter 17. I like the way Gordon Fee lines this up when he brings this to light. He says, look, one of the major things that set the Lord apart from the other that was who were claiming to be God was the fact that Israel's God saw into people's hearts and thus understood their thinking and deepest motives. See, Jesus is ultimately never, ever fooled by the shows we may want to put on. He knows what heart trusts in him, and he knows what heart trusts in humans. See, Jezebel was able to fool people and deceive them, but not Jesus. His eyes are like fire. He sees through all deception, and he gives every person according to their works. And we've talked about this for the relationship between faith and works. And so I'd say here that we ought to be like the psalmist who said this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord, you search hearts, search mine. And if there's something wrong in there that I'm not aware of, would, would, would you deal with me in such a way to, to guide my motives in life so that the conduct of my life reflects that I have faith in you and not something else? But Jesus judges another way also in the text. He rewards those who demonstrate faithfulness to him. He rewards those who demonstrate faithfulness to him. We see this in verse 26. The one who overcomes, he will, give a, will be given authority by Jesus. And the way that the authority is described here, at least in their world and their context, was the kind of authority that the Roman emperor alone exercised. And though the believers then and now are often at the bottom social, the bottom of the social ladder, there's going to be this great reversal that's going to come in the future when Jesus turns things around. We see it in Jesus' own life. He was at the bottom of the social ladder. He died, put to death as a criminal, but in the resurrection he was raised, and as he said, all authority in heaven and earth had been placed in his hands, and he's going to do the same thing for believers. It's the kind of authority that we see that the Davidic heir is promised in Psalm 2. He, the Lord says to him, ask of me, and I will give you the nations. And Jesus says, I'll let you share in that same authority that my father has given to me, and I'm going to reverse the fate of all of those who've been faithful to me in this life. 
He goes on to say a, a second promise, I'll give you the morning star. It's, it's not clear here what that is. It, it might be a reference to the cultural thing that was going on where the Roman troops would carry the, the star of Venus on their banners to, 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 to point to the idea of victory. Or, or it might be in the context of the book of Revelation. Jesus says uh, later in the book at the end, he says, he is the morning star. And it might refer to, to Jesus in the sense of saying, I will give you myself in the sense you'll share with me in my messianic rule. In either case, whatever it is, it's a positive thing. And we realize that we're taken back to the garden to fulfill our role that we lost at the beginning, to serve as God's vice regents to rule the earth with him. And Jesus offers something to us who are faithful to him in this life that is far more significant and lasting than what you can gain by human effort in this world. And the question really is, do you want what Jesus is offering or what the world and ultimately the one who's behind the world system, Satan, is offering to you? Now, I put that picture up because I think this is a good way to visualize it. You can have the party bag of Hershey Kisses right now. You can enjoy it, man. And there's some pleasure in that. Or you can later have what Jesus is offering, which is, hey, why don't you come sit at the table meet with me and run the entire Hershey company? The question is, what do you want? You can have the bag now, and it'll be pleasant for a while, but in the end, it'll run out. Why should we be faithful to Jesus? Well, in addition to love and trust, we know that Jesus judges people rightly, and we ought to order our lives wisely in light of that reality. This brings us to our second question in the text. How can we be faithful to Jesus? How can we be faithful to Jesus? As the Lord states in verse 26 that we need to keep his works until the end. Now, now, works has been this big idea that's been uh, consistent throughout the, the, the text. There's, there is the works of the church. There is Jezebel's works, and now Jesus says he has works as well. Here, end is most likely pointing to either the coming of Jesus or the end of natural life. Uh, either one may be true uh, in this context, or, or both may be in true, whichever one comes first. And the, and the good works that Jesus talks about at least starts to, to indicate is those he's already commended in verse 18 and 19. Those works include love, faith, service, and patient endurance. Uh, we see a, a relationship here between the, the two concepts that he lays out. He first tells us about the inward realities that produce the outward works. The inward realities that produce the outward works. Love will produce service, and faith will produce patient endurance in one's life. We remember the church at Ephesus. We remember how when they first came to faith, now their works had decreased and their love had decreased. But Thyatira is not like that. They're a church filled up with good works. They, they came to faith and their good works have just increased and their acts of love have increased and they've grown and done all these wonderful things. They're willing to, to endure and, and to try to stick with Christ and, and that's all going on as time has passed. And so I would say one of the ways that we can remain faithful is to grow in our love for God as well. And that's going to show up in the form of serving others. And growing in, in faith means that there's going to be this change in our lives over time that as we endure more hard circumstances of life, we won't be so quick to turn on Jesus when things are not going our way.
And I believe that's the reason why Peter gives us this admonishment and this about what we're to do in our Christian lives. He says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and notice what he says here, and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to stay faithful to Jesus? Keep growing in love and faith. So is your love and faith growing? Do you love a little bit more than you did when you first came to faith? Do you trust God a little bit more than when you first came to faith? Are you seeing more acts of service in your life, not just through the context of the church, that's a wonderful place, but just in your general life? Do you find yourself wanting to, to grasp and, and, and eager to get opportunities to serve others and do good to them? How are you handling the hard times as opposed to when you first came to, to faith? Do you find yourself praying more or complaining more? Are you more humble than you were in the beginning? Is there more generosity in your life in just varieties of ways? Or are you a more generous person than you used to be? Do you find yourself less attracted to the things of the world than you used to be when you first came to faith? How are you doing with judging people wrongly? Are you praying for your enemies or just wishing for their downfall? Are you growing in your faith and love? The second way in the text to remain faithful to Jesus is to not tolerate or practice teaching that compromises faithfulness to Jesus. We see this in verse 24. Toleration is the main problem of which Jesus addresses to this church. It's where they fall short at. We don't know exactly the, the full reasons for why they were tolerating Jezebel. Maybe her life was filled up with good works. Maybe she looked really good in the way she lived out her life. Maybe she did a lot of acts of service. It was just this little thing she was doing on the side. I love serving people. I love helping people. I love having people over my house. But while you're over my house and we're having conversation, why can't I just make your Christianity a little bit easier? And thus she was teaching people and winning them in. There are times when we are called to tolerance. But when it comes to this, this is not one of those times. As a church, whenever a person is teaching things that lead people away from God's way of living a holy and righteous life, there is no room for tolerance. Yes, as we see in the text, this church was a loving place filled with good deeds. Perhaps they had a food pantry and there was food distribution to the poor. Perhaps there was a compassion fund. Perhaps they had clothing donations. Perhaps they even had a chariot repair ministry. But you know what the problem was with this church, despite all their good deeds? No spiritual discernment. Jesus calls us to love. Yes, even to love our very enemies. But he also says, you as a church have to have spiritual and ethical standards. And the reality is that as we exercise those standards, we are going to stand out in society. And not everyone is going to like the, the stances that we take because it's going to make their life feel uncomfortable. 
See, love never means, at least in the biblical sense, the way God uses it and the apostles use it, it never means just accepting anything. Think about what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. He says, love abhors what is evil. Think about what was going on in Corinth with the brother who was living in sin and professing faith in Jesus Christ. He says, you've got to deal with that issue. You just can't simply, under the name of love, allow him to profess faith in Christ and live that kind of lifestyle and be part of the church. Not to be tolerated. And anyone who teaches anything that's going to lead you into sin, I don't care who they are, how persuasive they are, how good they teach, they're not to be tolerated. Maybe they take greed and they wrap it up in the garb of blessing, not to be tolerated. Or perhaps they take immorality and under the cover of love, they push immorality, not to be tolerated. See, this is one of the many glaring differences between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in comparison to the ancient gods that people worship. Scholar Gary Anderson put it this way, pagan gods did not punish ethical violations because they imposed no ethical demands. Humans only offended the gods through the neglect of violation of ritual standards. See, those gods, Apollo, Artemis, Helios, they didn't care about how you live. Bring me my offering, bring me my stuff, do my ritual standards, and as long as you bring me my offering, you can do whatever you want. And you know what? People are looking for those same kind of gods today. People like worshiping gods that make no demands on how they live and have no expectations for their moral conduct. See, that's why when the world says, you do you, that's saying, I'm not going to bother you about your ethical life, and you don't bother me. That's the kind of idea. But unlike them, Jesus does care. We see it all the way back in Genesis. That's why there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, using the word burden here, Jesus draws our minds back to what Pastor Mike referred to last week, Acts chapter 15. What was the burden laid upon the Gentile believers? Here's what it is. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what had been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. What are the two things that Jezebel is saying okay? The very two things that the Holy Spirit and the apostles of the church had already said were not okay. She was directly contradicting those two, two things. How we live in relationship to God and others matters greatly to God. And so Jesus says, hold fast to right doctrine that has been handed down to you from the apostles until I come. No matter how much the culture says to you to compromise, don't do it. Be faithful to him. Let me close with an illustration from N.T. Wright, just to kind of get at the emotional side of this. N.T. Wright says, imagine for a moment that you're walking down the street. You're by Zoo America, and for whatever reason, they have a rhino on display, and somebody's not been doing their job properly. And as you turn the corner, that rhino got loose and is coming, charging directly at you. What is your natural reaction? Run. That would be an appropriate reaction unless you have some supernatural strength like Samson. He says, listen, you ought to feel the exact same way when you are confronted with a life of greed, lust, jealousy, injustice, or any other sinful pattern that is offered to you. 
Then he says, but there's this other feeling that we have to deal with. Imagine somebody that you have in your life who's a close relative or friend that you love dearly. I mean, they are very deeply woven into your heart. You love them immensely. And let's imagine for a number of years that you haven't seen them. And for whatever reason, you're, you're on business, you're on vacation, and you're in some other city, and you're traveling, and you get out of the airport, and as you're making your way through the city, and you're with your spouse, and you're walking around, you see them in the distance. They, they, they don't see you, but you see them, and you haven't seen them in years. And there's a chance that they might get away. What do you do? You drop your bags, you drop whatever you have, and you book it to get to them because you know that you don't want to miss this opportunity because your heart is pulling you toward them in the same way. That's how we ought to pursue the new life in Christ. We ought to see it in the distance and run after it with all of the force that we have. What does Jesus say to us in a world of compromise? Be faithful to him. And what he's going to give to you in the end is far greater than anything that you'll gain in this life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for these wonderful promises that really are just grace, undeserved.